I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to Acts chapter 1. I'm getting a little bit of a late start today, quite a bit later than what I usually am. So since this is the centerpiece of worship, uh, preaching of God's word is where God speaks to us through the word. We don't want to cut this part short. So don't get antsy about 12 o'clock because we're going to be here a little bit longer than that. And uh, just stay with me today as we look at scripture. But it is our privilege and it is a great honor uh, today to be able to speak to you on the on a subject that to date is the most important event in all of earth's history. Every church that I know of is geared up and ramped up to celebrate Easter today, the resurrection of Christ, and uh, this is a part of that celebration. Today's message will be a part of that. Following this, in the last two weeks of this month, we're right at a point in our study, our regular study of Matthew's gospel, in which Jesus alludes to the resurrection. So uh, on the last two Sundays of this month, we're going to talk about the resurrection again. So you'll get plenty of information about the resurrection of Christ during this month. Now, I, I don't think that you would wonder why that we would spend so much time speaking about the resurrection because Christ's resurrection is really the defining moment of Christianity. This, this resurrection, a belief in this, is what sets us apart from all other religions of the world. The founder of Christianity died on a cross and there he made atonement for our sins and because of his death we shall also live. And there is a resurrection that tells us that we're going to live. So the founder of Christianity was put to death, and that was to prove that every word that he spoke was true. It was to prove that he truly was God in the flesh, that he has power over sin, death, and hell. To prove all of that, Christ arose from the grave. So the founder of Christianity is alive, and there is no other religion of antiquity that can claim the same. None of these other religions are true. None of them are paths to the eternal God. None of them have the power that is contained in the resurrection. And the resurrection, of course, means that Jesus is still alive. And because he is alive, the ministry that he began 2,000 years ago is ongoing. It's a ministry that never ends. And I want to show you today from the book of Acts in this message how that Christ's ministry continues to go on to this very day. So I'd like for you to pay close attention to what I have to say today. I'm not going to talk to you about frivolous things. We're not going to speak about Easter eggs. And I'm not going to talk about how spring flowers represent new life. That's not my subject today. I want to give you something here that you can hold on to hopefully and something that will feed your soul and also increase your faith. Now, if you'll look at the Word of God in Acts chapter 1, and it's customary for us as we read the Word of God to stand as we do, so I'm going to ask you to stand one more time. And we're going to look at Acts chapter 1, reading from verse number 1 down through verse number 11. Acts 1, verse number 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 
and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the reading of your word. Open our hearts to the message that you would have us here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The writer of the book of Acts was one of the companions of the apostles. This was Luke. And uh, most prominently, he spent time with the apostle Paul And Luke was the historian that chronicled the phenomenal growth of the church throughout the first century that came about because of the apostles' preaching. Luke states here in the beginning of Acts, in the first verse, that he had written a former work. And what he's referring to, of course, is the Gospel of Luke in which uh, it was his intent to explain the ministry of Christ, to explain the teachings of Christ, to talk about his miracles and about his death, and of course also about his resurrection, which all of that put together were the proofs that Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah. Now, if you look at the heading of Acts, most of your Bibles will say the Acts of the Apostles. And there are some that say, well, that's not quite accurate. That's not the best title that we could give to this book because the book of Acts is actually about, mostly about two very prominent of the apostles. One was Peter and the other was Paul. And uh, it's probably more appropriate, they say, to call Acts the Acts of Peter and Paul. But I think as Luke writes this, that he has something different in mind. The book has much to say, as we know, about the ministry of the apostles. It has much to say about Peter. Paul becomes the main character after you get past chapter 12, and what we read in Acts after that is his missionary journeys, which becomes the backdrop, you might say, for the rest of the New Testament and the letters, most of the letters that we have there in the rest of the New Testament. But I think, as I said, that Luke has something else in mind here because Paul makes it clear in his writings, those that we see a little bit later as we go through the New Testament, that every sermon that he preached, every motive that he had for enduring the suffering of the Christian life, all of that has one particular purpose. And he states that in Philippians chapter 3. He says there, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss 
for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And I think that Paul proves for us there that the real title of the book of Acts should be the Acts of Jesus Christ. And that's because his ministry still continues. Christ's ministry did not end at the cross, it didn't end at the tomb, but because Jesus came out of that tomb, because he lives forever, he still carries on a very vibrant ministry in the world. And so Luke begins this, this uh, first chapter of Luke by stating that Jesus is alive, and he says for 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus made numerous appearances to his disciples at one time, it tells us in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that there were over 500 people at one time that saw Jesus alive, saw him in that resurrected body. And as we'll see in just a few minutes, because Jesus is alive, he has a ministry that still continues today, and his ministry will go on as long as God himself exists. Now, I want to show you this morning that because Jesus is alive, first of all, because he is alive, there is a priesthood in his ministry. There is a priesthood in his ministry. And to understand that, we have to go back to the cross. We have to go back even further to the Old Testament, to the beginning of the priesthood in Israel. What is the responsibility of a priest? Well, rather than turning to the many passages that we have in the Old Testament that would describe to us what priests do, and there are many of those that we could look at. Instead, I'd like you to turn in your New Testament to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, and here is where we find a connection made between the ministry of Christ in the New Testament and to the priesthood that we find in the Old Testament. And if you'll look there at Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1, the writer speaks of the Aaronic priesthood. Now, you may not understand that, but that simply means the priesthood that was established by laws that were given to Moses. And it describes here what a priest does. Now, I want you to hold on to the book of Hebrews because we're going to read more verses from it just a little bit later. But in Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 1, the writer says, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself is compassed with infirmity and so by reason hereof he ought as for the people so also for himself to offer for sins and no man taketh this honor unto himself but he that is called of God as was Aaron. What is it that a priest does? Well, this scripture explains it to us. He offers sacrifice for sin. He makes atonement for God, uh, to God for sins. And that simply means that the sacrifice that he makes is an appeasement for the wrath of God. That sacrifice satisfies God in a figurative way for the sins of the people. Hebrews goes on in other places to say that the priest offers sacrifice, but he's no different from other people. The priest is also a sinner, 
And so in order to make uh, a, a, a sacrifice for other people, he first has to make a sacrifice for himself. In the Aaronic priesthood, he has to make these sacrifices for himself because he, he's not qualified unless he has first been cleansed from sin. And so year after year, the priest continues to make those sacrifices because the ones he makes are not capable of removing sin forever. And it's for that reason that we have the priesthood of Christ and it's different from other priests. Jesus was a different sort of priest. He was not after the priestly order of Aaron because he intended that he would make a sacrifice that would abolish the sins of people forever. And so in order to do that, he had to be a priest that continues forever. He has to live forever and make a sacrifice that is of infinite worth. Well, the priest's job is to make intercession for the people with God. He's the one that stands between God and man. The priest is the one who brings these two parties together. On one hand, you have God's justice that's satisfied because sin has been punished. And then on the other side, you have man justified before God because his penalty is paid. But it's evident to all of us that once we become Christians, we know that we still sin There are no perfect Christians, and I don't think there's anyone in here that would admit, would not admit that we are not perfect people. We still sin, and so therefore we still have to have a mediator with God. We still have to have someone to make that intercession for us, and this is what Christ continues to do. He continues in his priesthood that has been enabled by his resurrection from the dead. Now, if you'll flip a few pages over to the seventh chapter of Hebrews, the scripture says at verse number 23, Hebrews 7, 23, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. And there the writer is talking about priests that comes from men. These are priests of the Aaronic order. There was a long succession of those priests because they died. And when one of them died, someone had to come along to replace him. But notice what the writer says in verse 24. He says, but this man, and he's speaking there of Jesus Christ, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus has a continuing ministry. He is alive. And the necessity of his resurrection is that we might have a faithful high priest, one that throughout all of our lives makes it possible for us to approach God, to have fellowship with him, and to have our sins forgiven on a continual basis. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the reason that you have forgiveness is because of good things that you do. Don't let anyone tell you that you can be saved by keeping a set of rules or abiding by certain rituals. Because if you claim salvation based upon your own merits, you have defamed Christ. What you have done is to trample the blood of Jesus. You've nullified the ministry of his resurrection. We are saved and we remain saved only because of this. And that's because of the work that Christ has done on the cross and the work that he continues to do, being alive because of the resurrection. And so to take all of that and put it into a simplified form for you, Jesus must arise from the grave or else we have no basis to come to God. 
Christ must be resurrected. He must have a continuing ministry or else every sin that you commit is going to be a fatal sin. The next time that you do anything wrong, your salvation becomes nullified. But because Christ lives, because he saves us in the present and he saves us throughout all eternity, once you have believed, the scriptures teach us that you're never in danger again. Hebrews said in the verse we read a moment ago, he saves to the uttermost. The Greek word there is pantales, and it means the full, complete, final salvation that we have in heaven. And so the eternal consequence of the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ is that we have this priest that intercedes for us so that we can come to God, so that we can meet God, so finally we can stand in the presence of God. And then secondly, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is power for our lives. Now, if you look at the first part of verse 8, back in the uh, first chapter of Acts, Jesus said, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And that's a statement that takes us back to a conversation that Jesus had earlier with his disciples before his death. The disciples were despondent about this. Jesus, on several occasions, told them that he would die. And they protested that he shouldn't die. He he shouldn't go to the cross because then if he dies, they're going to be without his companionship. So they try to persuade him, don't go to Jerusalem. We know that they're against you there. We know that they're going to take you and put you on a cross. Don't go to Jerusalem. But Jesus was determined to do that because this is why he came into the world. He came into this world to go to that cross. This is his purpose so that his death is not a tragic accident. His death is not martyrdom. His death was not a misunderstanding. But the death of Jesus Christ was a planned event. In fact, it was planned before God ever created this world. And that seems to be somewhat odd to us because that means that Jesus' death was planned before man was ever created. It means that it was planned before there was ever an opportunity to commit the first sin. You see, God knew that that would happen and it was his plan and he intended to receive glory from man's fall and then the subsequent redemption that man would have through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so God's plan of redemption was not some kind of a knee-jerk reaction to the fall. Everything that happens, happens because it is in the eternal plan of God. But, as it takes place in time, at the time that it happened, in the lives of the apostles when this is going on, as they're living through this, they don't understand all of this. They don't understand this. To them, if Jesus dies, it means it's all over. The power for miracles is done. The power for changed lives is over with. That power that Christ demonstrated when he cast out demons, when he had power over Satan, that's gone if Jesus dies. Jesus' death ends all of that. But there was a strange thing that happened. Jesus died, he was laid in the tomb, and then he arose. Now we might think, well, that's such a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. Christ arose and a resurrected Christ living on the earth means that he can keep walking with the disciples. He can still live with them every day. He can keep on demonstrating that power that he showed by healing people and raising people, other people from the dead and by casting out the demons. If he lives and walks among us, then Jesus can continue his ministry in that way. But that was not his plan. It was not his plan. His plan was to return to the Father. 
And his plan was a far better plan because instead of Jesus walking with them externally and walking with them physically and demonstrating power, Jesus intended to give them something far more significant. He planned to come inside of them and to work his power from the inside out. Christ would come and live inside of them and work his power in that way. And how would he do that? Well, he would do it through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And did you know that the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ? Paul says in Romans chapter 8, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not this Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. There you see the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of God and he's called the Spirit of Christ. And so there we have proof that our God is eternally existent in three persons. The Holy Spirit came to live in us. He is the Spirit of the living Christ and Jesus promised that those who believe in him would have the power of God in them because Jesus Christ is alive in their souls. On the night of the crucifixion, Jesus said to the disciples or the night prior to the crucifixion, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth in you and shall be in you. And then going back to Romans 8, Paul ties the presence of the Holy Spirit to the resurrection. Following verse 9 that we read just a moment ago, Paul says in verse 10, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. That means he will make your bodies alive by his spirit that dwelleth in you. And so Jesus said in our text, ye shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And do you know what that means to you as a Christian, a believer in Christ? It means that you have the power to live for him. It means that you have the power to suffer reproach for his name. It means that you have the power to endure all the afflictions and all the rigors of Christian life. There's power also to continue the ministry that Christ gave us to do in this life. He supplies all the power that we need to work for him. So there's power to live by. And then you should be aware of this, that there's also power to die by. Because that spirit that raised up Christ will also raise our bodies into eternal life. This is why Christians don't fear death. And perhaps we may be apprehensive about it at times. Death is an unknown to us. We've never gone through it. We haven't experienced it. But at that moment when it comes time for a Christian to die, God gives us grace to die by. He gives us the power to die by. And that's because the Holy Spirit is living in us and the very moment of our death when one of God's people closes his eyes in death, that there the Holy Spirit with him brings him up to live in his new home in eternity in heaven. So Jesus Christ has this kind of continuing ministry through the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of Christ. And if Christ is not alive, if he stayed in that tomb, then there is no power for life. We're no different from the impenitent sinner who did not believe. We have no hope that's better than his. 
And so we thank God that Jesus is alive and that he's given us the Holy Spirit. We know that he's alive. We have no doubt that he is alive. Because if you know Christ, you know that he lives within you. Now thirdly, because Jesus is alive, there is a sure promise of his kingdom. A sure promise of his kingdom. Now if you've read the gospel accounts, if you know about Christ choosing his disciples, you know that they always had these questions about the kingdom. And the disciples were no different than the rest of the Jews on this particular issue, that they expected that when the Messiah came, that he would bring with him this kingdom. If he comes, then immediately he's going to establish his kingdom. And that had been the hope of Israel for centuries, going all the way back to the time that God spoke to David and promised him that there would be an everlasting king to sit upon an everlasting throne in the everlasting kingdom. And this Messiah that would come would be the last one to sit on David's throne. And the Jews fully expected that the coming of the Messiah would coincide with the establishment of this kingdom. And the kingdom had been gone for quite some time when Jesus died. Uh, Over 500 years, there had been no king in Israel. And so they just naturally asked these questions. They wanted to know about this. They expected that the kingdom would come. In fact, you'll find the disciples jockeying for position in that kingdom. James and John asked Jesus, well, one of us would like to sit on your left hand and one of us on the right. Can you grant us that? And the other disciples were jealous because they were all maneuvering, trying to find their place in this kingdom. They were jealous who would get the best spots in Christ's kingdom. And it was that failure of an immediate kingdom to come. And it was the fact that we have a dying Messiah rather than a living one at this particular time when they took him to the cross. It's that fact that caused the kingdom to be delayed. They would not receive Christ the way that he came. They didn't didn't want the kingdom on his terms and so the kingdom was delayed. And now what happens then if the Messiah dies? What happens if this Messiah remains in the tomb? Well, he hasn't yet established his kingdom. And therefore, if he remains dead, there's no hope for a kingdom. There's no king. The king is dead, and so there can be no kingdom. Well, the disciples learned more about that. I mean, they listened to Jesus as he was teaching them on this subject. It was apparent after a while, towards the end of his ministry, they became much more aware, well, he's going to die. He's going to die, and this kingdom is not going to be established yet. Uh, he's, He's going to die, so what's going to happen then? But they understand a little bit more about it. Now they've seen Jesus die, and now they're aware that he arose from the dead. And for 40 days, Jesus walked among them to give them the proof that he was alive. And so now they're still thinking about the kingdom, and they frame their question this way in verse number six. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time... Restore again the kingdom to Israel? Put yourself in the position of these disciples then because they're thinking, wow, we've seen this great life of Christ. We've seen all the miracles that he did. We saw that he has power over Satan. We saw that he can even raise the dead. Now he's died himself. But we've seen something that's never happened before and that is this person under his own power came out of the grave surely that's a sign to us now he's ready to establish his kingdom and so this has to be the sign that we've been waiting for the kingdom is now upon us and so they asked Jesus will you now establish your kingdom 
So surely the time is right. And they asked the question. And Jesus' answer to them was clear. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. In other words, he's saying, the timing for the kingdom is not known to any person. It wasn't then, and he wasn't going to tell them when. But there is a kingdom coming, and it can come only if the king remains alive. Now, Jesus is alive, and he's the king of that kingdom, and he has promised us one day he's coming back, and he will establish this kingdom on the earth. And so the resurrection of Christ actually becomes the basis on which that kingdom will come. Now, it's promised thousands of years ago, and because Christ is alive, the promise is still alive. Do you wonder why we talk so much about the resurrection of Christ? Did you know that this is something that you're supposed to pray for every single day if you're a Christian? This is how Jesus started the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was Jesus demonstrating us to us the way to pray. And so that's supposed to be a part of your prayers. Why do we want the kingdom of God to come? Jesus said, this is the time when God's will will be done on the earth as it is done in heaven. And did you know that the final goal of all creation is to be restored to the perfect domain of God? What God does now is to allow sin. He allows Satan to have his way in the world. But there's a kingdom coming in which the whole world will be subdued under his power. Everything in heaven, everything in earth, everything under the earth will bow to the exalted name of Jesus Christ as he reigns in his kingdom. Let me read to you from Philippians that also ties the exaltation to the cross and then the resurrection. It says in Philippians chapter 2, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is the coming kingdom of Christ. We pray for that. I hope that you pray for that. And we pray for it because we're tired of the wickedness of this world. We're tired of hearing our Lord's name drugged through the mud. We're tired of crime. We're tired of godless wickedness. We're tired of people turning their backs on the Lord of glory. And as we're living through this and we see all these things that are going on around us, we look at that as an interminable amount of time. It just seems like too long. How long is this going to last? Why doesn't Jesus come back now? Why does he end it all? But we're talking about God and what is time compared to eternity. God bides his time. God allows this to happen. And he doesn't tell us when, but at some time, at any time, there's going to come this cataclysmic outburst of God's power. And Jesus will roll back the heavens in his return and he's going to take all of his people out of this world. And then there's going to be a period where Jesus allows the world to get a taste of what it will be like with full, unrestrained wickedness. He'll let people see how that life can be without the Holy Spirit restraining sin. And at first, people will think, we've got it made. 
We don't have these pesky Christians around any longer to bother us and to tell us what we're doing wrong. We don't have to worry about them anymore. They're always messing up our fun. This is why we hate Christians. But then God is going to crack down on all of that with a vengeance and then the world will be plunged under the wrath of God. And do you know what that's for? Do you know why God allows it for a while and then he comes back in and he, and he, and he just clamps down on all of the sin? There's a reason for that. And his reason is that he's purging the world of sin, getting ready for this perfect kingdom of Christ to come upon the earth. And then when it's time, Christ puts on the garments of the king and he comes back to rule over the world. He comes back with that breastplate of righteousness. He comes back with the sword of vengeance. And what he does is to push kings down to push presidents and prime ministers down. He puts his foot on their necks and then the world is brought under the domain of the righteous king. How does that happen? It happens because Christ lives. It happens because he came out of the tomb. It happens because there was a resurrection. And so that's what makes his kingdom a reality. His continuing ministry will be the reigning monarch of the world. And all will recognize him as the mighty king. In the 11th verse of Acts chapter 1, the angels spoke to the people as they watched Jesus ascend. And beginning at verse number 9, it says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Those are stunning words, aren't they? Stunning words. This same Jesus will return. The angel said, you see him go up, and you're going to see him come down. This same Jesus. He's not sending back an angel He's not sending back a representative. Jesus Christ is coming back to this earth himself to take his place. He is exalted in glory and he's going to come back to this earth in power and glory. Job realized that over 4,000 years ago. He said, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me and why does it happen because Jesus is not in the tomb he's alive and he has a continuing ministry and his final ministry upon the earth will be the reigning king of kings now finally today I think that we should end with another important point Jesus is alive and those of you that believe in him as savior you know he's alive he lives inside of you The person of the Holy Spirit is the way that Christ lives in you. And he empowers you to live that Christian life, as we've said. And because he is alive, he has something for you to do. Because he is alive, there is a program for his disciples. Christ has a program for his people. And if Jesus were dead, we don't have any need to discuss this. If Jesus is dead, we don't need to meet in church today and you don't need sermons about salvation. We wouldn't preach about the kingdom and we'd never tell anybody about Jesus. And certainly we wouldn't have a resurrection Sunday if he's still in the tomb. But because he is alive, this ministry that he began must continue. 
The good news of the gospel must continue. And so before Jesus left this world, he says in verse number 8, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. You know what Jesus did? He knew he was going to leave this life. So he called 12 men, called 12 apostles, and he began to train them to carry on the ministry after he was gone. He showed them what to do, showed them how to preach. He knew his time on earth would soon be finished. The cross was the destination. Payment for our sins is the goal in going to the cross. And his plan was to return to that exalted position that he had with the Father in heaven. But because he is alive, the ministry of Christ is also alive. He didn't stop saving souls. The, the apostles, they weren't the last ones to be saved. He didn't abandon this earth, but he still desires the salvation of people. In fact, his death on the cross was for a multitude. Isaiah said, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So the word of God is telling us there are still many people to be saved. There are still many people that Jesus died for and he arose for them and he wants to save them and bring them home to be with him. But they're not going until they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe it. And so do you know what Jesus did? He commissioned these disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He said, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of this world. And at the end of Matthew, we have another one of these post-resurrection appearances of, of Jesus in which he gives the Great Commission. I mentioned it at the beginning of the message. It's probably the same time that 500 people saw him at once. And Jesus commissioned the people in Matthew 28 where he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Jesus said, I am going to be with you until the end of the world. Now that proves two things to us. First, it proves that Jesus is alive. He's going to be here till the end of the world. And the second thing it proves is that the commission was not for those disciples alone. Because those disciples would also die. And so the commission is not for them alone. Jesus is alive until this day. And the commission that he gave to give the gospel to lost sinners is also alive until this very day. Now what I think that we need to do, I wish I could do right now, is to spend more time on this aspect of the resurrection because this is something that the Berean Baptist Church sorely needs and that is for this membership to be more involved in Christ's great commission. And what we shouldn't do is content ourselves with bringing money to church so that we can send out missionaries to do the work for us and not be content just to bring your money in order to pay the preacher, although I'm personally very grateful for that. But that's not all that you want to do. Uh, you, you don't want to just sit right here within these four walls and let me explain it to you day after day after day or Sunday after Sunday. 
There's something that God has given us to do, and that is for us to meet together as a church, that's his plan, and then to expand his gospel beyond the four walls that we have here and take it out to the world so they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. There are people in your families, there are people that you work with that have no idea what Jesus did. Maybe they've heard a little bit, maybe they've heard nothing at all, but they really don't have an idea who Jesus is. And you know what the Bible says about them? And I have to put it as plainly as the scripture says, because I'm not going to tell you something that's not in the Bible. That's not my MO. I preach from the Bible. And you know what the Bible says about it? It says if they don't know Jesus Christ, they will die and go to hell. I didn't write that. God said it. Jesus Christ said it. Every one of the apostles said that. If they do not believe in Jesus Christ, they die and go to hell. And you know the wonderful thing about this, though, that every one of you in this room this morning sitting here, somebody told you that information. Somebody gave you the gospel. Somebody told you, unless you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to die and go to hell. And thank the Lord for this, that he convicted your heart and you believed and you trusted Christ. Now you're no longer on the way to hell. And why is that? Because somebody carried out, somebody did the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples. And so you see, it's God's program for his disciples to organize into churches like this one, for us to come together and unite together for evangelism. We meet here to learn what God's word says, and then we separate from this place. We're only here for, well, you may feel like right now it's been three hours, but it hasn't been that long. We haven't been here all that long, and we're going to leave here in just a few minutes, and the thing that we do is take what we've heard and take it to people outside of the four walls. Give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we do, then the ministry of Jesus Christ continues. You see, there's a program for you and me, just like there was a program for those original 12, just like there was a program for those 500 that saw Jesus at one time. There is a program for us as well. Jesus arose from the dead and left us with this job to do. So let me just propose to you some final questions as we close today. Just ask yourself, what are you doing because Jesus is alive? Because of you, is there anybody that knows that Jesus is alive? Have you told somebody about this? Are you actively engaged in this? Do you tell people Jesus is alive and if they will believe in him, they can die and go to heaven? The question for you is, will the gospel live or die with you? You see, there's a priesthood in the ministry. There's plenty of power for your life. There's the promise that Jesus gave that his kingdom's coming to this earth. All of that's possible because Jesus is alive. So now, what are you doing with the program that Jesus left us with? The psalmist said, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Do you know what he's talking about there? The precious seed, that's the word of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, go out there and sow that precious seed. Go out there and distribute the word of God. And the sheaves are those that are saved by hearing the word of God. And so again, we have another question, and that is, when Christ comes again, how many sheaves are you going to have with you? How many people will you have with you that you brought to Jesus Christ and faith in him? The Bible says 
And the last verse that we read a moment ago, verse 11 of Acts chapter 1, the last verse of our text, the same Jesus is coming again. And that is the blessed hope of the resurrection. He is coming again. And now, what are we going to do about that? What are we doing because Jesus is coming again? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow in your presence now, we are so thankful for the resurrection. We say that. We preach about it. We have it in the Bible. And we, every Easter rolls around and we talk about the resurrection of Christ. But I wonder how many of us have really said anything about it at all, done anything about it at all from year to year and all those days that pass by until Easter comes again. I just wonder how many of us would dedicate ourselves to you to give this gospel to other people, speak to those that we work with, speak to those in our families, those that we come in contact with. Jesus is alive, and you need to know this, and you need to be saved. That's what the original 12 did. That's what those 500 people did. And because of them, the gospel of Christ has been spread around the world. Now we have a new generation of people, and many have not heard the gospel. In fact, most of the world hasn't heard it. Even people in our own city, people that we see every day, haven't heard it. So Lord, help us to give the message of Jesus Christ to them. Jesus Christ is alive and living in us. Lord, if there's some soul here today who hasn't received you as Savior, help them to understand the message that I preach today. Give them uh, understanding of how they can be saved, simply trusting in Jesus Christ to be saved from all of their sins. That's the great message of the Word of God. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Lord, we pray that you save some today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.